So Inspector Clouseau <laughs> invites you to open God's precious holy word to Luke 19. Picnic coming up. There will be winners and losers. Blood will be spilled. And bellies will be filled. House of prayer or a den of thieves. Our Lord is in his last week of his earthly life before he is crucified Friday. We just last time studied the scriptures of what we commonly refer to as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. So it's just the last few days. It's the season of Passover. Jews and proselytes have come from all over the world. The historian tells us two to three million Jews masses of people packing into and immediately around the city of Jerusalem. Very difficult for a, uh, to find a place to stay. Tents were set up everywhere. Judaistic law at that time required that if you were coming to the Passover, you had to arrive the day before. So all kinds of things are happening. We also read from the historian that possibly as many as a quarter of a million people were following Jesus when he came in on this triumphal entry. So he comes to Jerusalem and enters the temple grounds. The temple grounds were, were vast. There was immediately on the inside the court of Gentiles. Anybody could go in there. And it was the largest of the courts. Then the next one in was the court of women. It was smaller, but men and women in the priesthood could go into that court, but the women couldn't go no further. It's interesting to me that the gate that leads into the court of women is called the beautiful gate. Well, okay, I, th I thought that was kind of neat. Um, <laughs> Beauty, you know, okay. I'm like the guy who said God's most wonderful and beautiful creation was a woman. The second most beautiful creation was an Irish wolfhound. So uh, I have my priorities in order. After that, the court of the Israelites, it's smaller. Each court gets smaller. So the men could go in there. Then after that, the court of the priests. Then right there, beyond that, the holy place, the holy of holies. The area that made up that entire temple, the temple grounds, was a, a, a massive piece of real estate. So there was all kinds of activity. Anybody could go into the court of Gentiles. And it's in the court of Gentiles where our attention is drawn today. We're going to be paying attention to just inside the first wall. We'll be in the first temple. 
So there were animals being brought for slaughter, for sacrifice by people. They'd made a difficult trip carrying their best animal that they had, lamb. Passover was, to say the very least, an extraordinarily complicated and busy time. It means something to you and me because our Lord, God, the presence of God in a human body, Jesus Christ, God the Son, comes in and gives to us a great lesson about things that we should take to heart today. Now, there's not a temple anymore right now except the temple of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, who, who resides in the church, our bodies. The presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. But there's no need since, of course, our Lord died on the cross fulfilled all the law. There's no need for a temple, even though there's going to be one rebuilt at the end of the days. Here Christ comes in. Malachi chapter 3, first few verses. The Lord will suddenly come into his temple. So, here we are at this point in time. Christ, having made it to Jerusalem, has made it to the temple. Now, let's be taught today about some things that are still important. And the teaching comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's look at it. I'm going to read the whole passage and then take about four things into consideration. Having entered into the temple grounds. Now, there are two words. Naos and Heros, or in this case, Heron, Tahiron. Uh, this, the Greek refers to the whole temple ground. That's everything. The court of the Gentiles, the women, the Israelites, and so forth. The whole thing. All right. So having entered into the temple grounds, he began to cast out those selling. So there were merchants selling things. We can read history books and we can know what they were selling. It has been written, and my house will be the house of prayer. You, however, have made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching every day in the temple grounds. However, the chief priests and the scribes and the foremost of the people were seeking to destroy him. And they found not what they might do, for the people were hanging on all his words, listening closely. All of the religious groups would have been there during this time. Uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Essenes. All over the world, proselytes, foreigners who had become Jews. Synagogues for foreigners would have been set up so that they could come and worship in their language. It was a, it was a complicated and very busy time of the year. Let's consider four things. First of all, our Lord Himself 
defines worship. Now, we don't go to the temple anymore, obviously. As a matter of fact, this is just a structure. It's a building. It's very special to us. It's where a local body of believers come, comes to worship. But of course, the structure is not the church. It's a synagogos, translated synagogue. It's a, an assembly. It's an assembling place designated for the people of God to come and worship. But it is not an ecclesia, which is the church, a called out one. We are the church, the people of the church. Ecclesia, ek, out from, kaleo, to call. The called out ones, the church. We know today that uh, our sacrifice has already been made for us. We understand all of the things that were going on in the temple, required in the law. All of those things were fulfilled in the person of Christ for us. Still, however, there are lessons that are very important. The first from this passage, the first lesson is for us to understand what worship is. Now, none other than God the Son is here. He walks into the court of the Gentiles and there's all this wild and crazy stuff going on. It was called something like the Bazaar of Annas or, or the, the Marketplace of Annas or something like that. Set up shops. This is inside the temple. What were they doing? Well... You had to pay a temple tax, but you had to pay the temple tax in a temple shekel. So you brought your money, Roman money mostly, from around the world, and the priesthood would not accept Roman money. Here's what you had to do. You had to go to the money changer. They charged 25%. If they required a dollar, you had to pay a dollar and 25 cents in other money, in your money. So this was a big deal. And you think about this. Two to three million people, that's a lot of money. In addition, of course you had to bring a, an unblemished animal as prescribed by law. A lamb, in the case of poor people, turtle doves. And I have read how Jews from around the world would take great care knowing that next year they were going to go to Passover. They began the process of carefully watching and selecting the best of their flocks, the best one. Keep it unblemished. Don't let anything happen to it because it was set aside. This animal was going to represent you before God and all that's wrong with you. And it was going to be destroyed. And your faith and your belief was that God was going to, in a wonderful day and in a wonderful way, provide for himself his own lamb. But this was your belief that you were sinful and that something that was unblemished as designated by God had to be sacrificed in your behalf. So this was a very careful process. Months and months and months leading up to Passover. Now you had to make a difficult trip from wherever you came. 
taking care of that lamb. But here was the deal. The high, Annas was a high priest and Caiaphas, and they were all in this thing together. The shopkeepers would buy franchises from the high priest. Very, very exclusive thing to have a shop inside the temple. Franchise was very expensive. But the priesthood had a very special place. They worked, of course, for the high priest. And you would bring every, every animal had to be inspected by the priests. And the priest would declare whether or not your animal, your lamb, was unblemished, acceptable. Guess who had thousands and thousands of pre-approved lambs? The high priest did. They were everywhere. At this time, it's estimated, historians say, Passover in the day of Jesus would have seen 200 to 300,000 lambs slain. That doesn't mention turtle doves. Turtle doves that cost about a dime were selling for $10. That's 1,000%. So here's what happens. You proudly but humbly present your lamb to the priesthood who immediately say, nope. It's got a blemish. It's flawed. You're going to have to go over here and get one of ours. It's very costly, very expensive to buy a pre-approved lamb. Well, this was what you came for. You had to do what they said. There was nothing else that you could do. So a whole lot. You think about this. Uh, 200,000, 300,000 lambs, not to mention turtle doves, sold at an exorbitant price. How much money you see, Annas and Caiaphas were filthy rich because of the business of the temple. Well, this wasn't right. So here's what, here's what happens. Having entered into the temple grounds, he began to cast out those selling, saying to them, it has been written, and my house will be the house of prayer. You, however, have made it into a den of robbers. This comes from both Isaiah and uh, uh, Jeremiah. My house. He, you see what he says? My house. Authority. God is in the building. The problem was godless people don't recognize the presence of God unless... It's in judgment and wrath. He had been with them for these three years, teaching, preaching, healing, performing miracles. Everybody knew about him. The whole crowd is following him. First thing he does, he begins to throw them out. Now, if you compare all four of the gospel accounts, Christ was very physical with them. He physically threw them out. He physically overturned their tables. He kicked this stuff around. And he must have been outnumbered, but they didn't do anything about it. He was, he was obviously able physically to do what he did. 
He's angry. House of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbery. My house will be the house of prayer. The quote that he gives comes from Isaiah. It says, for all nations. That's how it completes in the Old Testament. Christ gives to us a direction of worship. On this very special holy time, during this special holy time, Passover, the focus was supposed to be, and it, I'm sure it was on, on the minds of most worshipers, but it was the religious leadership and the political leadership that was messing the whole thing up. Focus was supposed to be on how the house covered by the blood was passed over. People in that house weren't perfect, but they were God's people. The simple command, the blood of a perfect lamb will save you from death tonight. So this was the message, this was the season, this was what the hearts were to be focused on. People who otherwise were unworthy, made worthy by God. Passover. Supposed to be focused on this, this perfect lamb. All the care that these families would have taken for the months leading up to Passover. Separating and grooming and taking care of this special lamb. And it had one job and that was to die for the worshiper. Thinking of sin. We can read how in the Bible we can read what kind of prayer was acceptable. You remember, remember the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. The Pharisee was filled with himself. He was self-righteous. And he, he, the Lord said he prayed to himself. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these sinners, especially this publican, this tax gatherer. The tax gatherer fell on his face. Couldn't even look up. All he could do was pray. As a sinner, be merciful. He's in the presence there of the place where the mercy seat was and it was on the mercy seat that the blood would be spilled on the day of atonement. Be mercy seated to me, the sinner. The publican, the tax gatherer in his prayer was not thinking of anyone but himself. And thinking only of himself, he was overwhelmed in the presence of God with a great sense of guilt and sin and an overwhelming need for mercy. And Jesus said his prayer was heard. The Pharisee's prayer was not heard. In this temple, there are people filled with themselves. The religion of self-righteousness. I am going to heaven because I say so. And I say so because I have determined 
what is required for me to do to go to heaven. Well, that doesn't fit within the gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere. It doesn't fit within the teaching and preaching of Christ for the previous three years. Filled with people who are full of themselves, but especially the leadership. I want you to think about this. Because of the increased number of Jews and because of the the zeal of, of messianic fever and the thought that there might be a revolution or rebellion, the Romans would have had many, many more times soldiers than what they usually had. Now, the masses were believing that Jesus, in their, in their erroneous theology, ignoring the suffering Messiah of the Old Testament, they went on to the victorious Messiah. Of course, Christ had been teaching them that the Messiah first has to suffer before he can rule and reign as king. They don't want a savior. They want a king. They want a tough guy. They want somebody to come in and kill all the Romans. And so the Romans were everywhere. Here he is going into, who's the first people that Jesus attacks? He doesn't attack the Romans. He doesn't attack the Gentiles. He doesn't attack paganism. He attacks those who are supposed to be the people of God. We are taught in the scripture that judgment begins at the house of God. The nations will never be right if the people of God are not right. So he goes after the people in the temple, the worshipers, the leaders of the religion. Those who otherwise thought that heaven would be privileged to have them as residents. That God would be honored for them to stand in his presence. Because of their ability to keep the law, be so good. Christ called them vipers and hypocrites, whited sepulchers. He had the worst, the worst language for the religious leaders who saw no need of salvation. So we know what the prayer would have been. The prayer would have been, I confess my sin. There's a lamb here that I see as the most perfect thing I've ever seen. And I'm going to put it in my place because you have invited me to do this. And I want you to pass over me when you see this blood applied. But that wasn't the focus. The focus was the business. That lamb is no good. You got to buy this one. That'll be a thousand bucks. Next. Cruel, heartless, godless. Nothing like what the law had required nor what heaven had expected of these people. It's been written, my house will be the house of prayer, but you've corrupted it. Those of you who should have known best have made it the worst. You have made my house 
a den of robbery. Worship defined. The things of the world cannot be in our hearts when we worship our God. So what's in our hearts? Well, in our unworthiness and his willingness to accept a sacrifice in our behalf. Our guilt, his justification. Our fallen nature, his grace. Our shame and humiliation, his invitation. Whosoever will, let him come. Isaiah wrote in 55, uh, what, 55, the chapter before this one? Look at the waters. If you're thirsty, come get a drink. Come to me if you're thirsty. Whosoever will. It's a beautiful message. A beautiful message. But there were so many unwilling because of self-righteousness and because the law and the religion of Judaism had become poisoned. God himself is making a correction. He had already said previously, and we saw it last time, not one stone is going to be left on another. When he wept over Jerusalem, you remember, because he knows they're going to reject him and put him on a cross. So then worship is a time where we come before God in humility and guilt with confession and repentance and faith that God has made provision that he will save us if we ask him to. Whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life without cost. The last invitation of the Bible is in the Revelation 20, chapter 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears the gospel, let him say, come. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life without cost. Doesn't cost you a thing. The wonderful, beautiful Grace of God. So what is, what is the house of prayer? Well, it's a place where we are reminded of our guiltiness and our sin, our imperfection, and our need for God to save us, that we cannot save ourselves, that God has provided, symbolized by that, by that box, the Ark of the Covenant. He, the Ark, he, he, he symbolizes it by ingesting the law within, within that box. Putting a gold-plated lid on top of it, which was the mercy seat, with the likenesses of cherubim extending their wings over it that we might be in the shadow of the wings 
of those whom God has appointed, appointed to guard the way to the tree of life. It's mercy that causes that blood to be spilled. It's grace that draws us to it. House of prayer. The place where a sacrifice is made. Acceptable to God that we might be spared. That we might be covered in the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That is how the Lord defines worship. The next thing that's important to us is that the word must always be delivered. Look at this. And he was teaching every day in the temple grounds. Masses, throngs of people we're going to see were attached to every word that he spoke. They're wanting, he's hated. They call him names. All kinds of things conspiring to kill him. But the thing that matters is the delivery of the Word of God because the Word of God is so powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. And only the Word of God, and only once in the Bible are we told, it is strong enough to divide the soul from the spirit. The spirit man from the soulish man, the, the emotional man. It's too easy to confuse the emotion within me with the spiritual things. What can tear away the things that I don't need to hear so that I might not be confused? The Word of God. The Word of God. God Himself is delivering. What was He teaching? Well, we've already seen it. We've seen it for chapters previous to this in Luke. He's preaching salvation. He's preaching, if we take all of the gospel accounts, he's preaching the need for regeneration to be born again. He's preaching the need that we must be in the spiritual kingdom before we ever have a thought of entering into the physical kingdom. He's preaching repentance and the gospel. Repent and believe, Mark puts it that way. Faith in him, come to me. You're too labored in all of this law and legal stuff. You're too full of yourself. Throw it all down and just come to me and I'll give you rest. He presented himself as our Sabbath. All we have to do is rest in him. And I don't know why people have such a hard time with that, but that's what makes people hate the gospel because they love themselves too much. I can't believe I can't believe that I'm not supposed to do something in addition to what Jesus did. I tell you, you pervert the work of Jesus. You cheapen it. If you think you can add something to it, that you might be saved. We know what he was preaching. We know what he was teaching. 
the gospel, the salvation that comes from heaven, found only in himself. Probably still teaching his disciples, they're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'll rise again. Probably teaching the people the difference between the first and second comings. Maybe continuing to teach them that not one stone is going to be left on another. That judgment and wrath comes upon impure religion. And that apart from Christ, all religion is destined for judgment, wrath, and hell. We know what he was teaching. He was teaching every day in the temple. The word was delivered. Even so, his wisdom and the wisdom of heaven was defied by his enemies. Look at this. However, the chief priests, scribes, and the foremost of the people were seeking to destroy him. If you're making... I don't really know. I, I'm just going to use modern vernacular that maybe is applicable, but it's similar. If you're making $1,000 a pop at a lamb and two hundred to 300000 of them are going to be sold, you don't want to give that up easy if you're in this world. You're making a 1,000% profit on turtle doves you're getting 25% return on your money. Filthy rich selling franchises for exorbitant prices so that people could sell their trinkets and remember the Passover. Big deal. No wonder they hate him. They have the people in a trance, these chief priests and scribes and they have the people in, 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 entranced in believing that they have to follow their rules in order to be saved. And the rules come from the traditions of men and not from the law. They had made slaves out of the people. And they were able to extort the people, to drain the people of money. And they had power and they had wealth all because of their religion. Christ comes and says to the people, this doesn't save you, and this is not what my house is for. You think they're going to stand still for that? No. So what do they do? They conspire to destroy him. Remember we read in Daniel's prophecy that at the end of the 69th week, Messiah would be he would be destroyed and would receive nothing, would not, would not come into his kingdom on earth at that time. Headed to this predestined appointment, Christ will be destroyed by these people. So here they are, and we still have them today. Our job is to fulfill the Great Commission. 
Go into all of the world, preach the gospel, teaching them whatever Christ has commanded us, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is our priority, to deliver a message that spiritually changes people. We're not responsible for the changing of people. God assumes that responsibility. We're just responsible to deliver the message. But when you teach and preach God and His Christ, you fly into the face of power-hungry people, even in religion, even in the so-called church. Because in the name of trying to do things outside the parameter of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church becoming socially active at the expense of the gospel creates empowerment and dependency on the behalf of other people, you see. So today, liberal theologians, leaders in liberal churches, despise the real Christ. Because you have to tell them and they have to believe that they're worthless without Christ. We don't want you hungry. We don't want you naked. But before all of that, we want you saved. We must preach to you the gospel. And it has to accompany everything. And when you're free in Christ, you are free indeed. And thus empowered by the Holy Spirit, saved folks have an unction to plant their churches and to do the things of God. That's the great power of the church. But when you try to take the power away from leaders and false prophets, you find that they really don't want that Jesus and they prefer to destroy him. Finally, the way is determined. So what happened? What happened here? All right, let's look at it. These people at that moment seeking to destroy Christ, they did not find what they might do. Why? Because the word of God was stronger than they are. For the people were hanging on all his words and listening closely. You know, okay, here's what's going to happen. Christ is going to be crucified. There's going to be all kind of confusion. And there's even going to be betrayal, Peter among them. There's going to be all kind of problems, but things are going to settle down. Then, come, then will come the day of Pentecost. Thousands will be saved. The word never leaves us void. It made a difference. These people were hearing something that their souls longed for and they didn't even know they longed for it until they heard it. And so the word of God at this point in time was more powerful than anything the world could do to Christ. As a matter of fact, Christ will not be crucified until he submits to it. Gospel of John, closing, in closing. Here they come. 
Christ is praying. It's at night. The temple guards, they can only be armed with clubs, billy clubs. But Achillearch was in charge of the whole thing. Now, Achillearch commands anywhere from 600 to 1,000 Roman soldiers, which leads us to believe that there could have been at least 1,000 people, including the temple guards, coming to arrest Christ, probably because they didn't know how many of those multitudes would object. So they came at a time that was unlikely, in the middle of the night. Judas, of course, had betrayed. The leader demands an answer to his question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Now, I want you to think about this. Tough, armed, battle-hardened soldiers, mean scallywags, temple guards holding clubs, hundreds and hundreds of men ready for action. Just make the wrong move. Poor old Peter, you know, he took out his sword and he, he almost started a mess. Christ took care of it. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus said, I am he. What the Bible says in John's gospel, immediately all the soldiers fell down. <laughs> With one thought, he knocked them down. Now you think about that. He went willingly to the cross. They weren't going to drag him to the cross. He would lead them to the cross. And then standing before Pilate, to paraphrase, Pilate says, can't you give me something so that I can just let you go? I don't find any fault in you. Christ would say, for this hour, for this purpose, I came into this world. There used to be an old song that I don't always agree with every song, but I agree with this phrase in this song. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. Come to Christ today if you are not saved. Let me pray with you. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian, and God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation. You're invited to come and we'll take care of all the details of membership if that's what God wants in your life. Father God, be glorified now in whatever you do. We're powerless and helpless and we just trust that your will will be accomplished, whatever it might be. And whatever it is, we'll glorify you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing. Would you come?